0: Besides having three near-death experiences, he is an award-winning poet, author, inspirational and motivational speaker, film advisor, minister, YouTuber, artist, Vietnam veteran, and mystic. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time.
1: Well, you left out my most important duty, grandfather. Six grandkids. That's awesome. Six grandkids, two kids, but only one wife keeps life simple that way. Yes.
0: That, and it's it's good to say less expensive if you don't change
1: wives. You know, you know how you keep your marriage together mm-hmm. from the very beginning. I've been married fifty one years, but mm-hmm. you you always introduce her as your first wife. This is my first wife, girl. <laughs> and then the second secret to longevity in marriage is never allow your wife to own a handgun. Mm-hmm. But but you know, being Scott Irish, you know, uh, uh, this old old grandfather I met and when I got married, he goes, he goes, you want to know the secret, laddie? I go, what, what, what secret? He says, you know, we've been married over 60 years. You know, I said, oh, what's the secret? He says, we go out twice a week. Okay. To what? We go out, we eat the best. I go out and we eat the best restaurants. We have the best wine, have a great time, stay out late, come home when everybody's in the whole neighborhood's asleep. And we do that. I said, that, that's successful. He goes. that's right. He says, I do it every Tuesday night. And she goes out every Friday uh, night. Yeah. Well, great.
0: <laughs> As I look through your YouTube channel, there are many, many things we could talk about. But where I want to start with is, can you give us a brief overview of your near-death experiences so we can get a little background of you?
1: Okay. Well, first off, brief is not in my vocabulary. That's not one of my modus operandi, especially being Scott Irish, you know, we'd never going to mm-hmm. shut up. Mm-hmm. So there is no brief, but I will abbreviate as best I can.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So actually I've had three near death experiences and thousands of what they call ST spiritually mm-hmm. transforming experiences. Some of them even more phenomenal and, and more inspiring and more life changing and altering than the near death experience. See, a lot of people, and I mean that a lot because I just know a lot of people have near-death experiences. You know, they have they have a near-death experience, you know, or they, maybe they have two or whatever. I've had three, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. But it's, for me, the near-death experiences weren't this thing that changed gears in me. and Oh, now I got to do this. now. Now I have these abilities. I kind of started off as long as I can remember back in the 40s. Uh, meditating, you know, at two, three years old, I was making up my own meditations and stuff. And and I was having spiritual transforming experiences at two, three, four, five years old. And, uh, and, and an alien abduction at five. So that's another whole story. But I had first near death experience at eight years old when I was admitted to the San Jose County hospital. Mm. As a ward of the uh, of the court, basically, of the county, and I was told I was going to die. I had uh, both my lungs were filled up with fluid. I had double pneumonia. I had uh, uh, what they call, used to call Bright's disease of the kidney, which is a kidney disease. And back then, there was know, yeah, there wasn't these ready available dialysis and treatments and all kinds of the stuff. This we're talking. 1954 55 around that time uh, when you got stage 4 stage 5 kidney disease you it, it was pretty bad i wasn't given much of a chance and i had about four or five other things wrong at the same time so when i went in the hospital my mother and my stepfather dropped me off and they were only there a few minutes and they just put me in a gurney and took me away and and, and i never that was it i had i wouldn't see them for a couple weeks and I'm, I'm put in this room and they put needles in my back, take some fluids out, and I'm left alone in isolation. And I spent almost a year, basically, pretty much by myself, just seeing staff to bring in food or, you know, give you a bedpan, total bed rest. So as a side note, people go, how are you handling this shutdown? I go, hey, I've trained for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've gone a year on bed rest, not being able to leave the bed, not being, no television, no radio, no toys, uh, visitors about 15 minutes a week on the weekend. That was it. And uh, no school, no nada, nothing. Anyway, so I was there the first night or two, and uh, first time i have been away from home by myself, which was boom, all of a sudden you're in this room by yourself in a building by yourself. And I'm laying in bed and I can hardly breathe. It's just like, I kind of breathe out and it was like nothing coming in. And next thing I know, I'm kind of floating. And I, and I know I'm kind of floating because I'm, I'm, I'm sitting up, but the rest of the, me, the body, the human flesh body is underneath me. I'm going, and that must be attached to me. <laughs> I'm eight years old, but I know that's not me. That's just the body. Right. So anyway, it was an interesting first time out, but it wasn't really my first time out astral traveling or out of body experience, but it was for a near death thing. It was interesting. And the room lit up to make this thing short and sweet. Cause I had three of these things. This was an interesting one because the room was like filled with like clouds and there was light emanating from these clouds. And I felt great peace, felt great love. And you realize I was eight years old. I was alone, abandoned, you know, and just had some medical procedures done and there's nobody there to hold your hand. And, you know, so it felt nice. It felt like somebody cared. It was like, no, we're here for you. I mean, it was like, nice. And then I realized that I was detached from my body. And at that age, I'm thinking, well, can I go back to it? Or can I leave? You know, what you know, it wasn't a big thought process. It wasn't like now uh, and later in life he could make it. It wasn't like I'm going to have to think about the decision. I'm just thinking, well, that's interesting. But then what happened was, When I'm enveloped in this cocoon of love, I get this panorama. It was like somebody showing videos on a screen of clouds because, you know, the images were on these clouds. And it was a rollout of major events coming in my life in the next 50 years from that point. Mm -hmm. So I was eight and a half and I'm seeing stuff all the way up to almost 59. As it turns out, I didn't know that at the time. But as it turns out later, I'm going, oh, that's right about now, because I reached that point. That we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I saw who I was going to marry. I saw myself in a war with helicopters. Didn't know, I didn't know what Vietnam was. I mean, 19, early 1950s, an eight year old kid, I had no idea what Vietnam was. You know, I didn't know what a Huey was, and didn't even have them. But I saw all that stuff, and I saw these battles, I saw these scenes. That later on, when I actually went to Vietnam, it was just all day shape. Oh, okay, I better, I better duck. There's a bullet coming. Oh, okay, we're gonna crash this time. I mean, I, I, I it was pretty much I knew what was gonna happen. So, but I, but I saw my children. I saw where I was gonna live. I saw the jobs I was working on. I saw these miles markers in my life. Hmm. And so I knew at that point when I'm seeing all that, that obviously I'm going back to that little bodily in there. Uh, I'm not going to die, but two numbers in in the middle of this thing, two numbers kept flipping around a 29 and it would flip over. And it looked like a a 59, you know, a two can look like a five if it flips, right? So it was kind of doing that two to a five thing. I'm going to go 29, 59. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. I thought, well, maybe that's when I'm supposed to die. 29, maybe 59. And then at some point about 15, 20 years ago, somebody told me, oh, don't you know, Saturn comes every 29 years when you're 29. And when you're just about 59, Saturn changes and you it's kind of like a spiritual rebirth. You know, it's like a death and a rebirth. Saturn comes into your life. And I didn't know that. So I didn't, I didn't know which one of those it was. Hmm. But that leads into uh, my second uh, near-death experience. Because now you got to fast forward from eight years old to the end of this, where I said 50 years. Let's go to the end of 50 years. Hmm. So now I'm almost, almost 59. I'm 58 and a half. When I had that had those visions, I was eight and a half. I think it was like October, November, my birthday is in March. So you can figure it out. It's almost a half. And so I was in India. I actually had this desire since I was eight, nine years old. I read the book at nine years old. I read the book Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. If, if, if anybody listening to this or watching this has not read that book, uh, don't consider yourself a seeker until you've read that. Mm -hmm. That will just open up your, your eyes. I mean, everybody from Steve jobs to the Beatles to everybody that's been, anybody uh, has been kind of inspired by the book and the book deals with a chapter about Babaji Mm -hmm. And Baba is avatar that nobody heard of before 1946, not in America, not in the West, uh, until he put in this book and he exposed, oh, here's this, this great being that's been looking after us and been looking after Krishna and Jesus and all these great ones and and bringing this, this new meditation, which was an old meditation, which kind of died away, Kriya Yoga. Mm-hmm. And... He brought it forth, and, and 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 transmitted it, and taught this great yogi, uh, Larry Masha, in this cave in the Himalayas. There's this whole intricate story about this cave, how he finds them, and they meditate for nine days or whatever it was in this cave, and great transformation takes place, and he brings that into to existence again, so people can learn this kundalini energy rising meditation. That's just the background. I'm giving you that because I was inspired by that by, by eight, nine years old. And I go, I got to go to that cave. I mean, at nine years old, mm-hmm. I want to go to India and I want to go to that cave. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I tried when I graduated high school day after 24 hours after I was out of high school, I tried to go to the South. I went to South Pacific and I was going to go to India that way and mm-hmm. ran out of money. and, You know, end ended up living in Hawaii and coming back. And then later on, when I was in Vietnam, and uh, they told me, "Hey, if you sign up for an extra year of combat, mm-hmm. this is great temptation—extra year of combat after I've been wounded and blown up and shot down—we mm-hmm. sign up an extra year. We'll send you anywhere in the world you want to go. You get free thirty days leave. We'll fly you there." And I thought, "Well, I could go to India that way." Then I thought, "Yeah, not a good idea." Mm-hmm. <laughs> My year's up. I'm going home, right? Sure. I mean, how many times do you want to get blown up and wounded, right? So, and then. I scheduled a couple of trips that got canceled and then, but life happened. Finally, in 2004, I went with a buddy and we flew to India and I just, I started a 10,500 mile journey around the country of India. I mean, we were up in the Himalayas, we were out in the desert, we were in Mumbai, mm-hmm. uh, we were in Calcutta, whatever the new name of that is now, but people know what is Calcutta. Uh, we were in Delhi, we were up by the Pakistani border, we were up uh, uh, the source of the, the Ganges, we were everywhere. I mean, I spent months there. Now, we were looking for Babaji's cave, and I kept, I hired this guy, that says. Mm-hmm. I'll go all these places. Yeah, great. I'll pay for your gas. I'll pay for your hotel. I'll pay for your food. I'll pay for your wage. But I got to get to this area where this thing's at. I didn't know much about it. I did some inquiry and I found out that there was an ashram in this little village up in the Himalayan mountains. And uh, so we went there and went to the ashram. It was a YSS ashram. There's a, it stands for a, an Indian name but it's, it's actually Self-Realization Fellowship. That's their Indian group in the United States. It's SRF. There it's YSS. And so we found the caretakers that take care of Babaji's cave. And there was a Swami there. We showed up just as it was a special holiday and special stuff going on where everybody was going to the city of Ranchi, Ranchi, whatever it's called. Ranchi, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And everybody left except for this Swami and, and, and one caretaker. And they go, uh, I told them what I wanted. They said, well, there's nobody could take you up there. And it's almost impossible to find. And I told the guy, I "Go." I said, look, I've waited 50 years. I'm here now. I don't know if I'm ever coming back. And then a part of my mind thinking, you know, I might even die. You know, I might not be here back in 59. I might not even be around. So I gotta see it now, right? And he said, Well, we'll think about it. So I spent I spent a couple of days there. Anyway, the next day I get up, it's it's cold. You could see your breath. It's that cold. It had a bucket of ice water to wash. I mean, literally ice water, and I had to break the ice on the top of it. And I had a breakfast of potatoes and rice, which is that's that's it's <laughs> Well, I said, okay, that works.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I see the, I said, I want to go see this cave. And so he discouraged it, said there was nobody around. Nobody's ever found it on their own. I said, give me directions. He says, okay. So he pulls out a piece of paper, takes a pencil, and just kind of chicken scratches a bunch of stuff around going, well, if you go down this road and and you drive, I don't know, 40 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. I don't know, something like that. And you'll come to a fork in the road. Maybe it's just before that, or just after that, there'll be a road off to the left. Don't take the first one you see, maybe take the second or the third one. I mean, that was the kind of directions. It was like,
0: wow.
1: My driver's looking at me like, what? And then he says, then once you get there, there's, there's all these trails, but the one that's marked, take that, that'll take you to the top. And, 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 and then if you want to go, here's the keys to the, to the gate because they lock it up and, and they got a temple there and everything. And He says, if you could find that and be back here by 530 tonight, this is early in the morning, because I locked this ashram up and you'll have all your your your, your bags and everything will be locked up and you'll have to stay at a hotel. And I said, okay, we'll do it. He says, you can find it? And he laughed, right? And I said, I'll find it. So my driver's looking at me like I'm crazy. He looks at the Swami and the Swami goes, Anyway, so we leave again in the car. We drive down the road. We drive about 40, 44 minutes. I go, stop, look around. Okay, if we come to another dirt road, take it. We did. Then we got that. and Then we come to another place. I said, well, take that. Anyway, we had to park it on this road because the road ended. It's a good time to stop when there's no more road. Yeah. And uh, I see all these cow trails, animal paths going up this mountain, and it looks like any one of them could be the trail. You can't tell a people trail from a cow trail. You know, it's like winding up this, we're talking about the Himalayas, right? We're talking about this hill, right? And then I look over the side of the road where we parked, and there's the sign, Babaji's Cave with an arrow pointing up, but somebody picked it up and had thrown it. So you didn't know which hill, which trail it was from. You didn't know which way the arrow, was, you know, pointing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there we were. So I said, well, we'll take that one. So we get on there and we start hiking and we're totally lost. And I realized that this time I was suffering. I had a problem I was having since Vietnam. I got blown up in Vietnam by a, by a rocket, a mm-hmm. Chinese rocket. And at about 20 feet in the air and I landed on my forehead, snapped my neck, my back, and it knocked me out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had a, a super concussion that was never treated. I don't even know how you treat a concussion, but it was never treated, uh, never taken care of and over the years it progressively got from migraines to having seizures mm-hmm. and i was having lots of seizures so that was one problem and then i was having heart problems i mean i was having heart attacks and stuff and you know and and then i got dysentery while i was there the first 3 weeks i lost wow. 26 pounds in 3 weeks in india wow. uh, we don't want to discuss how yeah but I'm walking this trail with the same problem. And so I had to take detours And anyway. And in the detours, there's something like poison, oak, poison Ivy there. I don't know what it's called there, but you go out there and you touch these things and you get the, the, just like, just like uh, poison oak rashes, right? Big lumps everywhere. And just scratch and had them all over everywhere. Right. So I, I didn't bring any water. I didn't bring any food. I was wearing just a t-shirt. Uh, no matches, no flashlights. No, mm. I mean, we're not prepared for anything. Now we're getting up in some height and it's getting cold. And the shadows from the, these tall mountains, you know, early in the afternoon, you're getting a shadow cast because the sun is just a little bit lower. And this was like October. So it's a little lower. So we're we're in cold, dark, you know, shade darkness. I mean, it's still light, but it's cold. Mm-hmm. Finally, after being lost several hours, we finally see that at the top of the hill there's a chapel, a temple. We go up there, we got the keys, we unlock it, and it's Babaji's temple they built. So we know we're the right place. Mm-hmm. Go inside, I just lay down, and my heart is going boom, 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 boom. I mean, I can tell I'm having problems, right? I'm lightheaded, mm-hmm. and it's not a spiritual experience, this is a physical experience. I'm having problems, right. So meditate for about a half hour to rest because the cave, according to what the guy told me, is another couple hundred yards uphill, you know, real windy up this hill. I mean, like practically straight up. And so we we go up and I'm, my heart is killing me. We finally get up there and it got a like a like bar, like a like a jail. There's these bars iron bars coming down. They had to put an iron gate to keep vandals and people out of this cave. I mean, even in India where we respect these sacred things, people go in there and they were chipping away the rocks. This is from Babaji's cave. and Then they would sell it. And, this is from Babaji's cave. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. this crazy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So we had the keys. We opened up and we had the entire cavern inside to ourselves. And before, before I left, I sat down on my computer and I typed up a list, number 10 in Disha, small letters, everybody that I wanted to pray for on my trip to, my first trip to India, I didn't know it was going to be my last trip, the only trip, whatever. And so I put everybody on this list, family, friends, high school buddies, army friends, neighbors. People that I met and enemies, mm-hmm. bosses, everybody I could think of, I put on this list. And some people I didn't know who the name was. I'd say bigger that I met in some restaurant or on the street corner, and 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 a hitchhiker that I picked up. I just I figured God knows who they are, right? So mm-hmm. I had all these people in there with little, just a little keynotes, so I knew who they were. And so I took this list with me to the Ganges you know, by the you know the beginning of the Ganges and the various holy places downstream. And I took it to uh, uh, to, to the Dalai Lama's place uh, where he was at. I took it to, to all the main spiritual hubs and temples. But when I got here to this cave, that was the most important place. I took it out. It was like three sheets, two sides, print. And I mentally mentally read it. But my friend's kind of looking at me like, <laughs> What's this? I said no because there was a part of me that said these people are never going to come to this cave ever Yeah, and if there's a blessing to be had and I wanted my friends and my enemies and my families and my neighbors and the people I've met along the way to get equal blessing.
0: Did you take a picture of the cave while you were there?
1: Yes I did. Oh, yeah wow. I do. I got, I got pictures in and I should share those with you at some point. You could post them or something. But uh, so there I was and then, by the way a footnote on that because we're going to go to a near death experience coming down the hill here mm-hmm. but I took that list to uh, a sunrise boat ride on the Ganges sun's coming up you know when the sun's come up in India when there's all that pollution you get beautiful skies because the pollution polluted air gives you orange and weird colors right yeah. so it's it really beautiful right and I read the list out there as the sun's coming up on the Ganges river. And then I got a match. I burned it, held it up to its very corner till mm. it was just ashed. I let it go. So I actually concentrated that list. So it, it, it was end up in the Ganges. So it was just kind of nice. It was a poetic thing. I'm a poet. So I just felt right thing to do. Right.
0: I think it's awesome.
1: Yeah. So there I'm right back in the cave and in the cave, my heart is going, mm. boom boom, boom. I mean, I, I've got something going on. I, I know I got something bad going on and I'm getting dizzy. And, mm-hmm. and it's, so we we have to leave, got to get back. So we lock everything up. We're coming back and my friend goes, well, you lead the way, which was a stupid thing because I didn't know where I was going and uh, <laughs> and I was feeling terrible. And I'm walking and we're another hour or two. We're not even finding the trail we came up on. And and he looks at me and says, we're lost. And I'm standing there and there's a 30-foot cliff. I mean, 30-foot cliff. The only good thing about this cliff is it went about 10 or 12 feet. And then there was like a, a couple-foot ledge. And then it would go down another 10 feet. Then there was a one-foot ledge or three-foot ledge. And then it landed on a big boulder at the bottom about the size of a Volkswagen Bug. Mm-hmm. Best I can remember it is I was cascading down i'm standing on the edge of this thing with my heart going boom 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 and then getting slower boom boom and then it's like i'm fading out hmm. and next thing you know i'm bouncing I'm falling and bouncing that's the thing that saved me had i made a straight fall under the rock 30 feet probably been pretty darn bad but i hit about 8 10 foot and then about 8 10 foot and then flopped on the, on my back, on my back, could have been a serious injury, right? Yeah. I ended up on my back, looking up, and I'm laying there looking up. I'm seeing the sky, and it's kind of like that cartoon, The Simpsons, mm-hmm. and the sky opens up with the clouds. That's what it's looking like. I'm thinking that in my head too. I'm going, "Wow, The Simpsons is something." I'm watching the sky, right? Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, I'm looking down. Da- I'm looking back down. And I see my body, I go, wait a minute, I've been here before. I've seen my body looking like that before. I'm looking at this body down there and there's no pulse. There's no breathing. There's no life. It's just limply laying on the rock, right? And I'm looking down at this. I'm going, okay, if this is it, I've got my my 50 years are in. If this is it, mm-hmm. this is good, it's all right. I've been to G's cave. That was on my bucket list, mm-hmm. literally on my bucket list. Okay, I, I could handle that, right? So I'm up there feeling loved and blissful and at peace, not really having any great desire to go back to that body that was in real bad shape, having a heart attack, and mm-hmm. it was in a lot of pain when I left it. And I'm going, you know, I'm happy that this is all right. And then I look down there, and I'm seeing coming out of this tall grass, Crawling across my feet is a cobra. Wow. Now, my wife always got mad at me, and I, and I always throw this in the story because I always have to be – got to be honest with people because the first time I told the story, it was like six and a half, seven foot, and then I think I told it about 10 years later, and, and the thing was uh, – it, it was a king cobra. It was like 15 feet. So – in truth, I have no idea how big this cobra was because I never saw its full body because coming out of the grass, slithering across both feet, and then going into its grass on the other side. So it's on the other side, six, eight feet away, and its tail is still coming out of the grass on the other side. So it tails in the grass on one side, the head's in the grass on the other side, and the middle of the body's going across my feet. So I have no way to guess how big that snake was, but it I'm watching this thinking and it's just great. And so I'm watching this and it's like, all of a sudden there's this great love. My heart is just bursting with love for this snake. Wow. Go figure, right? I, I, I didn't know all the stories about what the cobra represents in India, you know, the kundalini energy and all that. I had no clue. All I know was, that's my brother. That's, that's I love that snake. I, I got, and next thing I know, it was like, paddles you know like the fire department comes out and goes clear kook, yeah. you know and, and uh whatever that way they defibrillate you or something it was like two paddles on my chest that snake going across my feet was like two paddles on my chest it's on my feet and all of a sudden it was like clear boom and i jump up off the rock and next thing i know i'm in my body and my friends looking at me like i'm a crazy man from 30 feet up above Uh and I'm grabbing onto the body of the snake. The snake's body, where I'm trying to grab onto, now here's my hands like this, if the people are watching this. I couldn't get these hands, the fingers to touch. I couldn't wrap it all the way around the body of the snake. It was like this. So it was bigger than the two hands Mm -hmm. could grasp. Mm -hmm. So I have no clue how big the snake was. I don't know if it was a king cobra, cobra what, but it it was bigger than my grip. And it kept sliding through. Common sense would say, well, if you grab a snake, snake's gonna turn around and think, What are you doing to my body? Right. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It just kept slithering, and I kept, and then I started wading into the grass where I couldn't see my feet. And I'm putting my hands down where I can't see my hands. And I'm trying to grab the snake, and it keeps slithering through it for about eight yards, eight, ten yards. I mean, I'm just chasing the snake until it comes this little trickle of a waterfall coming down about an eight, nine foot waterfall into this little creek. And there was a little space behind the waterfall and I'm watching the snake just slither into that space. I almost reached in there, but part of me said, nah, okay, he's home. But that would have been really smart, right? Ah, I right there. But why I'm there, well, looking at that, I remember reading in the autobiography of a yogi that after Larry Masha had this great experience with Babaji and he materialized this palace, golden palace for him and then dissolved it. That's a great story in itself. But afterwards he was told, you know, go, go down to the, to the Creek and wash up and, you know, and in other words, chop wood, sweep the porch, mm-hmm. you know, gather, gather water, you know, it's so, all, so the same thing he went down there and he washed up and everything. And and and, course, and when I'm reading the book, it was like there was a little tiny waterfall and there's a creek. And I'm thinking, that's what I was thinking. I thought, was this a spot that nobody's ever found? Because nobody's, nobody has a, they don't know where that's at. Nobody labels it. Nobody says where they know where the caves have, but they don't know where he went. I could never find this place again to save my life. I, we found it by being lost anyway. So then I was thinking about that. So, Meanwhile, we, we, we figure, I don't figure, my buddy with me, he says, look, all water flows downstream. We're going to follow it down. We'll, fi- we'll find a house, a farm, a road, something. We went down, we found a farm. We paid these kids a couple, two, three dollars. They were happy. Help us find our car. They knew exactly where it was at. I mean, how many white people walk around, park a car up in that neighborhood? They knew where a car was at. So they found us. They got us there. And then we, we got back just as the Swami, remember him? Mm-hmm. He was locking the gate. It's that time we pull up and he goes, did you find it? And I go, yeah. And then he goes, come on inside. And of course I'm in there and I got a torn shirt. I got dirt all over from the fall. Mm-hmm. I got lumps from the, the, the poison, whatever it was, oak or whatever it was. I got mm-hmm. lumps all over. I, I sweat so much. Here's a, I sweat so much on that hike that I stopped sweating, which now people tell me, no, that's not a good thing. Right. <laughs> no, no, you're dehydrated. Just That's a bad thing, right? So I was dehydrated, and I had a heart attack, and I had a brain seizure. So all, all that happened on that falling off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So I proceed to tell the guy the whole story. blah, bom, bomb, blah, bom, detail by detail. And then this woman from Alaska, of all places, she was from Alaska. She was staying at a hotel in town, and she was just meditating at the ashram when she was leaving. She heard the story, and then she kept interrupting me. She goes, Mr., don't you know what they say? She said that about a third time. i go, okay, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: what do they say? And she says, it is said that those that have the most arduous journey to Babaji's cave— I have the greatest blessing. And the Swami looked at me and said, well, if it we walks away and I'm standing there, you know, and it's, it's like about 35 degrees temperature, you know, I can see my breath. Mm-hmm. And I got a t-shirt on and I, I was chilled and shaking and everything. And I go, and that just warmed me up. I just felt, no, that's good. Mm-hmm. Let's go meditate, right? So that was the near-death experience. Now here's where the 2959 come in. That was my second near-death experience.
0: Uh, before you go there, let me let me stop you and ask you something here. Yeah. Two things. Why was it that you wanted to catch that snake so bad? And two, do you think it's possible that that was Babaji manifesting himself as the snake leading you to that waterfall?
1: Well, there's an answer to that that neither one of us will know, we perhaps think. And at the time, years later, when I went back, to India, let's see, 2014. That was was 2004. I went back, next time I went back to India was 2009. I went to this ashram and they had all these rooms. None of the rooms had any images or pictures in them. They were all barren. The guru says, I got a special room for you. He puts me in this room and there on the walls a picture of Lord Shiva with a cobra wrapped around his neck. You know, it was just, I go, Oh wow. And he goes, like the guru goes, I thought you'd like this. And then he walked away. Right. And I'm going, what does he know that? I don't know. Right. Anyway. So yeah, it was out of love that I chased that and I have another Cobra story or two to tell after this, that will tie that in. So there I was, that was like October. I was on that journey till just about a week before Thanksgiving, I come home. Now you think a normal human being, after having all that happen, as soon as they got the civilization, they would check in with the medical unit, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's go check in and see a doctor. Nah, nah, you know, uh, yeah, I'm okay now, right? You know? yeah. So I go home, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. And then at Christmas around January, I'm still having problems with the heart. But then I got a new problem. Right here, I got a cancerous tumor at a big Thing, and I went to the doctor. The doctor goes, uh, "That looks like cancerous tumor. We, we gotta we gotta operate." I said, "Wait a minute, doc! You got to operate on my spiritual eye?" Mm-hmm. And then she laughed because she was an Indian, she understood so I was talking about. I go, "I I just went to India, right, to find the guru on the mountaintop, mm-hmm. right? And then I come back after having all these beautiful experiences, which we could go into this more. But I come back, and the cancer of my soul basically is getting removed." It's like taking the cancer out of me for my spiritual life. It was so symbolic. I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Anybody else would say, oh, my God, you're going to operate on, you got cancer, and I mean, what's going on, right? So, in fact, when I got it, I took the bandages off the next day. And my wife, well, you walk around all those stitches. I said, no, I'm proud of it. This is cool, right? There was nine stitches. It was just cool. Anyway, another old story. So, a month later, a month later, after having collapsed in my garage, collapsed on my couch, having a heart attack basically six or seven of them i'm thinking yeah maybe this thing's not going to go away if i keep ignoring it maybe i should take care of this so i tell my wife because i'm having a full-blown heart attack but you never know because i'm talking just like i am right now mm-hmm. i mean i've had enough of these i mean I had at least a dozen major of them, but i'm almost like this mm-hmm. and people go what so i tell my wife oh, i'm going i'm gonna to drive to kaiser hospital that's my hmo here in california I'm going to drive to Kaiser. It's like seven miles away. And I told my wife, I'm just not feeling so good. I'm going to get myself checked out that, you know, just the uh, urgent medicine or ER, whatever it'll take me. She don't me to drive. Nah, I'm good. Right. I get in my pickup truck. I drive seven miles. I go to ER. And if you've ever been to an ER at any hospital, there is no parking. You have to end up driving around the block and down the street to find a place to park and then come all the way back. To, unless you're, unless somebody's dropping you off at the, you know, the, the swinging doors where you go in a gurney. Yeah. So, 10 minutes apart, and I come back, I walk inside the building, and there's a line of 18 people in front of me. 18 people, I remember, wow. 18, okay, it was 18 people all standing in line to this nurse to get admitted. So, I, I'm waiting, I don't know, it's three, four minutes a person. So, figure that out. I'm sitting there and I'm still dying, I'm having a heart attack. I get up there and they say, okay, sir, you got, you got, what's the first question they ask you? Not if you're dying. Do you got insurance here? Mm-hmm. That's the first question they asked me. Not are you bleeding? Are you dying? Can you breathe? It was like, do you have insurance? Yeah. Yeah, here's my insurance card. Okay. Then they gave you a clipboard. They say, okay, fill out all this pertinent data, make sure you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I go back, I fill out this clipboard. It's three pages of questions. I get into the second line. There's only six or eight people. Finally get to the lady, the nurse, and she takes the clipboard from me and she looks at it and she says, there's a question on there that says, why are you coming in? And I said, well, because I'm having a heart attack When I wrote, right? Mm-hmm. She looks at me and she goes, well, we'll be the judge of that. She mm-hmm. says, how'd you get here? I said, well, I drove my pickup. Oh, yeah, okay. And where'd you park it? I said, down the street. Mm-hmm. And you were in that line? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Let, let me just take a listen. So she, takes, she listens, next thing you know. She goes, my God, you're having a heart attack. And it was like loud and her voice. Came, and she's calling for a gurney and people are coming out. and There's bells and whistles and stuff. And I'm going, what, what, what's going on? Do you have a heart attack? I said, yeah, I know. I, I told you that. Well, you, you don't act like it. I said, okay, I'm having a heart attack. I mean, here I am, right? So I go into this doctor and he's, he wants to, well, oh, we got to do surgery. We got to do this or that. And I go, hey, doc. I said, this is really not too fair. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, when I was young, because when I had that first near-death experience at at eight and I got out of the hospital at nine, I became a vegetarian. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Only one in the family, right? I I was Mm -hmm. just, I knew I had to do something to change my health. Anyway, so I became a vegetarian. I never really, I never drank. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do sugar. Didn't do salt. I didn't eat chocolate. I mean, I was like, I didn't do any of that stuff. I was clean, right? Good healthy diet, meditate. So I'm telling the doctor that I said, "Look, I said, how can I have heart problems? How can I have blockages?" I said, "I mean, I got, I got six decades in of of pure living, right?" And, and then he looked at me, and this is like February something, and my birthday is in March, where I turn. 59, right? Mm-hmm. So this is 58 and just a few weeks left of 58, right? And I was going to be 59. And you remember the 29-59, right? Mm-hmm. So he looks at me and he says, you know, had you not taken such good care of your body with your genetics, I would have guessed you'd been dead at 29
0: mm-hmm.
1: instead of Almost 20, 59. So there he threw the 29 to 59 out, and I'm going, oh. And then I started thinking, well, 59 is coming. This thing, hey, over get yeah. right? You want to operate on me before my 59th birthday, right? And if you believe in astrology or not, uh, when I was born in San Francisco on March 16, 1946, at one something in the morning,
0: mm-hmm.
1: there was another guy, another Irish Scotman, born there. A guy named Paul H. O'Brien Jr. And I'm William H. McDonald Jr. It's interesting. Parents didn't know each other, but our, our mothers were hospital mates. They had beds next to each other, I guess. And me and him were in cribs next to each other. We were born like an hour or two apart. We didn't know any of that till we met in the fourth grade in a city 45 miles away from San Francisco. I mean, we just had to come up to the conversation. Anyway, so that guy, Paul O'Brien, I figured if anybody shared my astrology chart, he got to be the closest born in the same place within an hour or so of my birthright, same day, everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Irish. I mean, everything, right? He died that year. Wow. I just found out about his. I go, oh, he's dead. So I'm in there waiting for this heart procedure, and they're going, Oh, this is going to be, you know, you've got to get your stuff in order, you know, and we don't know what's going to happen. So that was my second near death experience. And that's how the 2959 all related to that, which gets us to our, if we got time, I can tell you the third near death experience that takes place in India again. <clears throat> and that's most different near death experience. Nobody's had one like that. It's just, and then you got to classify it. Was it a near-death experience, or was it some real crazy second body experience? I don't know what the word for having a second a second body is. Because there's in 2010 when I was in India for a subsequent journey, the mm-hmm. guru at the ashram made me go get a naughty palm leaf reading done. And I said, I don't believe in them. And he says, no, they believe in you. Go get it done. Anyway, this this reading they did was ancient reading, which was written 2,500 to 5,000 years ago, which we could talk about another show about those. those, That's an interesting subject. But part of that reading made a bunch of predictions, which all came true. Hmm. And one of those predictions was, at a certain time and a certain date, I was going to go to a temple in Southern India, a Shiva temple. And when I got there, I was instructed, I'd walk uphill for two to four hours. I'd go up this hill and on top of this hill would be all the rishis waiting for me. I was 18 of them, 18 rishis or
0: something.
1: Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know who the rishis were when he's talking about, right? And he says, and you will be with them, and you won't ask any questions, because any question you could ask, you will have the knowledge yourself to answer. So that was a strange prediction. And then he made another prediction about Babaji, Lord Shiva, blessing me, getting oil and water on my head from the sky, and getting this blessing and chant and all that stuff. So there was some weird, weird stuff in there that hadn't happened up to this point. This was uh, 2011. I had a heart attack in India, Mm -hmm. in Mumbai. But I came all the way back to America, collapsed at the airport in Denver, six hours with paramedics. They put me back on an airplane, believe it or not. Came back to Sacramento, four days in ICU just to get ready for the operation. So when I'm getting it, I'm having open heart surgery. And I don't know if you know anything about open heart surgery. Uh, quadruple bypass where they put you on a heart lung machine which means they stop your heart and they stop your lungs and they have a machine pumping oxygen into your blood and your arteries hooked up to this machine and the blood is going into it so they're bypassing the heart literally bypassing the heart. And so they told me that's what they're gonna do and they're gonna you know cut it down and then you know saw whatever clippers whatever they use and then they this guy with a great bedside manner is telling mm-hmm. me that i'm laying on this metal steel cold steel table bare naked you know getting ready for this guy to, to knock me out and to do this and i and i i'm just curious i'm going well what are you going to do and his bedside manner is well i'm going to rip your chest open and he shows me these saws and these look like hedge clippers, oh, wow. clippers like you get them You know, like like a tree branch, you know those kind of things, pruning things. And he says, ah, you know, anyway, I'm going to stop your heart and all that. Oh, that's really great. I needed to know all that. He says, but then I'm going to have you on this heart lug machine. I said, well, we're on the heart lug machine. Am I going to feel anything? He says, he says, he says, interesting. You asked that question because there's a small percentage of people. You know, one, two, three, four, maybe five percent at the most. Uh, he says there's no real numbers on it, but just a tiny percentage of people be feel what happens that once we once we have you on that machine and do all this stuff because we have to cut back on the anesthesia because, hmm. you, you know, we, we could lose you. So that's a big part of the operation is you're hooked to the machine, right? So you get less anesthesia. So I was one of those people that felt almost everything, but that's another old story.
0: Wow. So
1: He says, he says, yeah, we'll we'll put you out. He says, we're going to be keeping you alive. No, he says, we're going to be keeping your body alive by having this pump, pump oxygen into you. He says, so if the pump goes off, you're not alive. Oh, that's good to know. Okay, great. Hope the power stays on, right? So they count, you count backwards from 100 to, you get to about 90 something, you forget, you're gone, right? I'm gone. They give me an injection and I'm gone. I'm floating out. But it's like, like that, boom, I'm gone. And I find myself standing, physically standing back in India, Southern India. I knew it was Southern India. I don't know why I knew it was Southern India. Because there I just plop and there's this Shiva temple standing here and I'm going, that's the Shiva temple that the prediction said, I was going to go to, and this is the time I'm supposed to be there. I mean, it's just right about the deer and everything. That's why I'm supposed to be there. But I was expected to be there in the real world, right? I'd make a trip, right? Mm -hmm. So here I am in this physical body. I think, well, I must be a a ghost or I must be an astral travel thing here or something, you know, because. And then people were looking at me and bumping into me and, and looking at me, when they, and they feel me, and I feel them, and I'm going, no, I was flesh and blood. And of course, what uh, the other thing? Remember, I think my grandkid asked my grandson asked me a question. He says, "Well, Grandpa, well, if you were naked on the table, did you have clothes on there?" And I go, "Of course, yes." Yeah. So, you know, yeah, this that's was a good it. question. But yeah, I had clothes on. And I got to go. What? I mean, I didn't even think about it until he asked me that question. But yeah, I had clothes on, hmm. so it was like. Wow. All right. So that's kind of neat. So I start walking and I walk and I'm thinking, well, the guy told me it was going to take six to eight hours this operation. Well, what was my instructions when I got this temple? Watch two to four hours uphill. I got nothing else to do. So I walk up this hill. I smell the fragrance of the, of the flowers growing on the hillside. I feel the ground. Uh, I can breathe in the air. I'm even breathing. I mean, and while I'm walking up this hill, I'm also feeling hands and instruments and things going on inside my chest in the other body.
0: Mm.
1: It was weird. I'm going 26,000 miles away in another old dimension. I feeling the operation. Mm. So I keep walking up this hill and then I get to the top of the hill and as expected sitting on a stump of wood and on a log and on some rocks around a little fire. There's these rishis. I believe there's 18 of them. I didn't count them, but whatever the amount that all the rishis are there. And I'm assuming that must've been 18. And then there was another guy there. The, the original guru that had sent me to get my reading. He was there. Hmm. He's got his arms folded. He goes, (laughs) you There was this guy there, uh Gurnoff was his name. And uh and I and I stand there and I'm looking at all this stuff, and it's just beautiful, and it's amazing, right? And uh and the guru is telling me, You could give up a beat. He says, You could skip a beat, but don't give up your heart. And he kept saying that to me several times during this thing, right? I'm going, okay, it's an odd thing to say, you know. And then these Remember that clouds I had when I was eight years old? Right. They're back. The cloud is back, right? It's just a all the way around me. There's just clouds. And I hear this soft, feminine voice. Like the most beautiful woman. Picture the most beautiful woman's voice you could ever hear, right? So, I mean, like an Irish singer, right? Mm-hmm. You know I mean, <laughs> beautiful voice. And saying, Bill, you've done enough this lifetime. You don't have to do anything anymore. You don't you don't owe anybody anything. You suffered enough pain. And I've had a lot of pain. I mean, it was just it was very painful. And I'm going, Yeah, yeah, I've suffered a lot. So I'm hearing this beautiful thing. She says, Come with me. She says, just give up your heart. Mm. I have bliss, joy peace, love, unconditional for you. It's waiting for you. And and the guru's going, no. You could skip a beat, but you can't go back to this. This is boring. I go, I go well, what are you going to do for me? And he says, I'm going to give you more pain, and I'm going to give you more suffering than you ever had, because you have to learn to handle that to teach others. I go. He says, "No." He says, "Every time you had pain, you bliss out." Like I, I for example, I used to get you know you get my teeth done, you know, and you drill down to the nerve. I never got the shots. I'm <laughs> just drill it, and the dentist would be, "Oh, you, know, you sure you don't want a shot?" You know, and he knows he's on the nerve right. And I just go do it. <clears throat> so I was just, I just get it out of my mind. But now that now the screw is saying, "No, you stick around." I'm taking that away from you. You're gonna feel everything. Wow. And I go. That's not enough. And then he kind of does this. And all these clouds, all I see is faces. Thousands and thousands of people. Hmm. Old people, young people, black people, brown people, Asian people, Indian people, Scott and Irish, of course. Everybody's there, right? I mean, it's just children, everything. Some people in wheelchairs. Some people happy, some people sad, but they're all looking to me hmm. like there was something I had to give them. And the guru basically told me that if I left, I didn't owe these people anything. I've done enough. But if I left, these people wouldn't get what I could give them, whether it was a smile, advice, teach them how to meditate, help them keep them from doing suicide feed him a meal whatever it was inspired out mm-hmm. the video whatever it was mm-hmm. it wasn't like they were all big huge things some were small things but I could tell some there was a real major need this was, was going to be a crossroads period when I met this person when I met them when I meet them they would need it and I'm looking at that and the guru kept saying you could skip a beat but you can't you could know, can skip 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 a your heart could skip a beat but you know anyway so you just kept coming back that you can't give up your heart. And so I'm in there contemplating that. And I really didn't want to. Uh, I'm thinking, man, she's offered me bliss. She's offered me joy. She's offered me peace. She's offered me love. And you're offering me pain? That's not a very good sales job. Right? Yeah. And plus, you give me the work for all these people. I got to work for these guys. Right. And then all of a sudden, I'm feeling more stuff going on in my chest. Right. People are pushing instruments and things. I feel metal and things, and all of a sudden, on the table, operating table, they must have took the two little paddles and jump started my heart. And it's all of a sudden, it's like, Whoop! I just like that. And next thing you know, I feel the steel table on my bare butt. <laughs> you know, mm. I feel it. You know, and and I'm going, this is not too good. But I got a tube down my throat, and I got you know, stuff up my nose and my neck. And and, and then the, I don't know if it was my imagination or not because I don't know if they do that, but I felt like my eyes were taped shut. I don't know if that's true or not, but I couldn't open my eyes because I'm going – I wanted to talk to them. I saying – I wanted to say, look, I feel everything. Can you give me some anesthesia? And they still had, you know, 45 minutes or more to go. I mean, they're just – I mean, they're – they're sewing up the artery, you know. I mean, well, I guess it was sewed up by the time they, they, they started here, but they would they were they had to wire the chest together, you know, literally, and put the cage back and sew the you know staples on. I and mean, there was a lot of stuff they were still doing. And I'm I am cognizant of, of the fact that this is all the stuff they're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, now they're doing this. Now I could visualize it. I mean, I couldn't see it, but I i okay. Now that you know now they're wiring, I could hear the conversations. So it's a terrible position to be laying there, (laughs) all that stuff going on, right? So finally, a couple hours later on, they move you into a room ICU, you know. Finally, they take the, the stuff out of my throat. And I just wanted to talk. It just, they gave me a piece of ice and it felt like the greatest gift you could give me. But for the next 10 days, I was having major problems. I had five blood transfusions. Didn't go well. But every time I would shut my eyes or drift off asleep or unconscious or daydreaming, whatever, I was back on the mountaintop with all these rishis. I went right straight back to the mountaintop and having all these people's, you know, images in front of me. And with the guru going, you can skip a beat, but you can't give a part. And I kept hearing that. Every day, several times a day for 10 days. So finally, about uh, 10 days into this thing, uh, I'm, I'm going downstairs for emergency procedure about 30, 11 o'clock at night. And they got a gurney. They put me on this gurney and the phone by the bed rings. And they won't let me answer. I said, no, I got to answer. I got to answer that. I got to answer that. They said, no, no, no. We got to take you down. You got an emergency thing. We got." I said, no, I got to answer that. And the doctor said, okay, let him answer So I answered it, and I heard his voice. This is Gurdaf from India. Like, how many Gurdafs do I know? Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'd I'd say Guru, right? So, and then the next thing out of his mouth is, "You can skip a few beats, but don't give up heart." Mm -hmm. And I'm going, "I've heard that for ten days, man. What is going on here?" Right? Mm -hmm. So then he goes, "I still, I still, I still just want to throw it in. I don't want to live. I mean, I just ah." and then he goes, he says, Bill, I just told all these people that I was going to heal you, and I sent them up to the temple to pray. You wouldn't want to embarrass your guru, would you? In other words, don't die, because you just told yeah. me he was going to cure me, right? And I go, oh, damn it, man. I mean, geez, man, what a thing to tell me. That's what motivated me. He knew nothing else was going to, I wasn't going to be motivated by all the other stuff. Not by my wife, my grandchildren, you know, all this other help. But no, it was, you can't die and embarrass the guru after he tells everybody he's going to heal you. Yeah. So I told my wife, I said, I'll be out of here. in a Day and a half, two days, I'll be out of here. And I was. But my next to last day in the hospital, one of the other weird predictions, remember the one about the oil and the water in here from Babaji and Lord Shiva and all that? I'm laid in the bed and uh, all of a sudden there's this dome of light, like energy source. Like somebody took a bowl, glass bowl, put it over the bed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And on the other side of that is the world. It's like everything else going on. But inside of that, at the, at the bottom of my bed, stood this avatar, long black hair. Young looking. No shirt. It's 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 my vision. I'm looking at him and he's got Levi's on. Mm-hmm. So he's he's got Levi's on and barefoot, but he's got no shirt on. Mm-hmm. He's got this long black hair and he's pouring oral, oil, and water on my head. Mm-hmm. Now here's I didn't think about this till about a year ago. I said, What a second. he's at the end of my bed, which is about six and a half, seven feet away, and he's pouring this stuff on my head if he's standing there. So at the time I didn't question that, but He's at the end of the bed, but he's pouring the oil on wall in my head. So I, somehow his hands are right there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're having that, you don't question it, right? So it was a beautiful experience. I'm thinking, well, I'll probably on drugs. And if you can have a delusion, this is a beautiful delusion. But I thought, well, that's interesting. That's what was predicted, right? That was what was predicted because he was chanting and everything. So I come home from the hospital. My my daughter comes over to visit. She says, I saw the old neighbor, David, and he uh, he was at the hospital and Uh, I go, no, he he didn't come visit me. He says, no, he was there yesterday. And I said, no, no. He says he went to your room and he he walked into the room and you had some young, crazy Indian guy with long black hair, with no shirt on bare feet was pouring garbage of some kind of salad dressing or water or something on your head. And he was chanting this Indian stuff that he thought was funny. And he started to laugh and he left because he didn't want to embarrass you. And I go, he saw that? Then I told my daughter, and we mm-hmm. both realized there was a witness to what happened.
0: Wow. So,
1: as with my dream, with you know, you could skip a beat, but don't give a part. And then the guru says that. Mm-hmm. And then, as with his experience at the end of the bed, and then this guy verifies that. That's what he saw, but he thought it was just some crazy young Indian guy. So that was my three near death experiences.
0: Those are fantastic.
1: tell brief. That's, yeah. We just take it over an hour to be brief. So there oh, yeah,
0: you go. I was going to say, well, first of all, those are fantastic experiences and thank you for sharing with me, those with me. And yeah, we, we went right through my hour. So I'm going to have to definitely
1: questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's it shows over. Bye. Um, I'm going to def I definitely want to have you back. I mean, as I knew, just looking at your new YouTube channel, that there are a lot of things to talk about. I mean, I could have many, many segments yeah, with you. We
1: got all the miracles, supernatural stuff having in the Vietnam War. <clears throat> I want to so, talk.
0: I want to talk to you.
1: Trips to the India. Yeah, miracles, create unbelievable stuff. Mm. That's a whole show. Yeah, and then there's the rest of my life. And then right. There's time travel. There's UFO. Uh, yes. I mean. I've written, yeah,
0: I've written the UFOs down. I've written down time travel. I've written down Baba G. So those can all be separate shows. So let's, let's say this before we go here, I want to help people find you. Um, so what's the name of your YouTube channel?
1: Okay. My YouTube channel is, uh, Rev Bill McDonald. Okay. Rev Bill McDonald. uh, I'll send, I I sent you a link. So if you put that on the body of this Mm. someplace, how they can find me. And my, uh, website which yeah. has links to everything from there the website's just www rev bill mcdonald.com okay. all one word rev bill all right um, and but if they could they google me i, I come up videos all over the place mm-hmm. i got over a 100 and some videos individual stories mm-hmm. interviews everything um even I find them interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Do you have a Facebook page? And if so, do you interact do. do you interact with the public or are you more of a private guy?
1: No, I believe it or not, sometimes I actually give people my telephone number. It depends who they are, what their situation is. Wow, that's great. Uh, I kinda of triage the situation. If somebody looks like they they're on the edge and mm-hmm. I've dealt with suicides this year most especially and and people that are depressed and saved a few marriages and a few children and everything else. So I go with my feelings. If I feel like I want to give you more, I give you more. Uh, But I answer, I make it a point. If you write me on my email, contact me, I will respond to you in some manner. Mm -hmm. Maybe a short message back, maybe a a conference call, maybe Mm -hmm. a Zoom, maybe a Skype. Uh, Mm -hmm. I will find it. It really depends what I sense if I sense that you're one of these people that I saw your your image in, I had one the other day. She She just sent me a note. Uh, a lovely lady in Florida. She sent me a note. And said she saw my video. Didn't expect any response back. Just wanted to say she enjoyed the videos. And I go, no, I got to contact her. I contacted her, and 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 talked to her on the phone, and and got things going. And, and she, I looked at her picture on her website, and I'm going, I have to help her. Mm. I have to help her. Whether she knows it or not, I have to help her. Mm. So that's the way it works. So everything in my life is done not logically, not with data, not with two plus two equals four. Because in my world, two plus two doesn't equal four all the time. Mm -hmm. Two plus two could equal red. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it could be, it doesn't have to, you know, it's. In my world, only thing that's real is love. Mm -hmm. And since God is the only reality, then God is love and love is God. uh, But that's another whole discussion if we want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I got over 100 sub videos because there's so many topics and there's so many things. There's so much to do. Yeah, there's so little time in the hourglass. The sand is slipping through. All right, well,
0: Bill, I really appreciate you giving me this hour. Hopefully soon we can get back together again and talk about another one of these topics. And um, I wish you a great evening and have a great weekend.
1: Same to you. And let me know when you post this up. And uh, for those people out there, if they they will find my email out there, but they don't. Have, if they got a good memory, because most people don't. I don't. Mm. But Huey, like the Huey helicopter, H U E Y. Five seven six. Here we five seven six at gmail dot com. Okay, so that's about as easy as you get.
0: All right, Bill. Well, thanks, and have a great evening. Blessings. Bye bye.